0: Welcome to week two of our study of the afterlife. Last week, Pastor Tom took a sobering look at the reality of a place called hell, why it exists at all, and who will be there. This week, he will look at how the Bible describes what existence in hell will be like. He'll also explain what we call the progressive revelation of the afterlife, which basically means a look at how our understanding of the afterlife has grown and expanded from the earliest references to the afterlife in the Old Testament to the more developed perspective we have now. Let's join Pastor Tom now for the second half of Afterlife, Part One.
1: Now, another question about hell that the Bible talks about is what is hell like? In hell, in hell, the mathematician who lived for his science can't add two and two. In hell, the concert pianist who worshiped himself through his art can't play a simple scale. The man who lived for sex goes on in eternal lust, but no body to exploit. The woman who made a god out of fashion has a thousand dresses, but no mirror. Hell is this place of eternal desire, but eternally unfulfilled. But, but there's another side to this. G.K. Chesterton once said, hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human personality. Hell, like a compliment? Well, yes, because God is saying to you, you are significant, saying to all mankind, I take you seriously. You choose to reject me, you choose hell, and I will let you make that choice. C.S. Lewis said it this way. There are only two kinds of people in this world, two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All who are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there would be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. God does not want us to be separated from him. That's why he sent his son to die for us, taking our place. That's why he so clearly warns us concerning what will happen to us if we're separated from him in hell. Not to scare us, but to allow us to see our need and the glory of his rescue. What happens to people in hell? In this world, even the worst sinner enjoys benefits of God's presence. Even though this world is stained by sin, we still experience the joys of God's creation, the joys of God's work. It will not be that way in hell. What's hell like? The most horrible thing to be said is it's a place totally apart from God. No love, no creativity, no kindness, no forgiveness, no beauty, no light, no God. It's a place totally apart from God, and so it's a place of torment. The Bible clearly teaches that hell is a place of never-ending torment and torture and anguish. Matthew 25, 46, Jesus taught, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, just look at what hell is like. Not to delight in the fact that evil people will suffer, but to have compassion and love for people who need the Lord and to praise God for rescuing us from that kind of torture. Hell is a place of emotional and relational torment. Hell is not going to be a big party. You've heard people say, I'd rather party with my friends in hell than sit on a boring white cloud in heaven. There are no friends in hell. There are no parties. It's a place of separation, eternal disappointment, eternal torment. Look at Matthew 8, 12 but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Eternal weeping, eternal gnashing of teeth. When you make a decision that you regret, you grind your teeth in anger at that choice. That's what it means to gnash your teeth. Hell is this place of eternal regret. Matthew 10, 28 tells us that hell is a place of death, eternal death. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul rather be afraid of God, who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. People exist forever in hell, but it would be wrong to say that they live forever. It's a place of death. It's also a place of physical torment. In Mark chapter nine, verses 43 to 48, so if your hand makes you lose your faith, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life without a hand than to keep both hands and go off to hell to the fire that never goes out. If your foot makes you lose your faith, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life without a foot than to keep both feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye makes you lose your faith, then take it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to keep both eyes and be thrown into hell. There, the worms that eat them never die and the fire that burns them is never put out. It's just the honest truth that God's word tells us. Fire. That's what we usually focus on when we talk about what hell is like. And fire is a picture of of the torment that we face in this place of separation from God. Hell is not a place of cold nothingness. It's a torture to be separated from all that God is. As horrible as this physical torment may seem, the spiritual suffering is even deeper. It's a place of spiritual torment. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart. From me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And 2 Thessalonians 1 9 says, They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. J- just look at these words in Matthew 25 and 2 Thessalonians 1 Depart from me, cursed, eternal fire, punished, shut out. Jill Briscoe writes, I was talking about the realities of hell to a bunch of lively junior high kids. I wondered if they'd be interested. They were. What's more, they came up with some definitions for me. What do you think hell is really like, I asked. I think it's, it's being allowed to take one good look at God and never being allowed to look at him again, a 13-year-old boy announced seriously. I think he had one concept of hell right. It is the idea of exclusion from the very presence of God. Now, looking at this truth causes us to think twice before we callously think or hear or or say the words, go to hell ever again. We wouldn't wish this on anyone. And God doesn't want this either. I wanna come back to that in a moment, that God does not want this for anyone either. But before that, there's a question we have to take some time to answer first. And that is, where do people go now when they die? Now, at this point, for the next few minutes, we're going to take a very in-depth look at a number of things that have to do with the afterlife. So I want to invite you, put on your spiritual scuba gear because we're going to be diving very deep. The truths we're going to look at, they take some thought, but the thought is worth it. They help you to understand the breadth of what God has to say about the afterlife in the scripture. And failing to understand these truths that we're going to be looking at, they lead to all kinds of false teachings and personal doubts. That's why I want you to understand them. For instance, some teach that we as believers don't go to heaven immediately when we die, that our souls, they they like sleep in the grave until Jesus comes again. That's not what the Bible teaches. Others teach that believers, before they go to heaven, they're punished for their sins in a place called purgatory. Again, that's not what the Bible teaches, and we're gonna see why. These are just a couple of examples of the confusion, the false teaching on the afterlife that can come out of not understanding these truths. We're gonna clear up that confusion, now, hopefully in just a bit, just a little bit, clear the fog over these next few minutes. According to the New Testament, believers go immediately into the presence of God to await the resurrection of the body, the eternal joy of heaven. And upon death, unbelievers go to Hades for punishment and to await the resurrection of the body and final punishment in hell. Now obviously, what I just said there, it takes some explanation. That's the simple truth. We could end there, but then I'd be leaving you without the assurances that you need. And I don't want you to think that that I assured you somehow that we will be immediate with Jesus when we die without showing you where that assurance comes from. Because the truth of the matter is, it's not me that's giving the assurance. I want you to know in the depth of your heart, God assures me that I'm gonna be with him. And to have that assurance, you have to jump into this in-depth Bible study. This simple statement brings up a lot of questions. These include the growth in the New Testament and Old Testament teaching concerning the afterlife. These include something called the intermediate state between now and Jesus' final judgment, and they include the future resurrection of the body. Because a great deal, again, of false teaching, unfounded fears grow out of misunderstanding these truths, we're gonna take a look at them. First, the progressive revelation of the afterlife in the Bible. The Bible often gives us greater insight into a subject in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. That's called by some progressive revelation, which is God revealing more and more truth on a subject as we read throughout the Bible from beginning to end. So a friend says to you, you aren't with the Lord when you die. I read in the Old Testament that we go to this shadowy place called Sheol. God could certainly not be there. But the the answer is, but God didn't stop with the Old Testament. He gives us more light on this. It's easy to get confused about what the Bible has to say concerning the afterlife if you look only at the Old Testament. In much of the Old Testament, the afterlife was seen as this shadowy unknown place because Jesus hadn't come, he hadn't been resurrected. God hadn't revealed the whole truth yet. You can see this through a study of the word that's used most often for the afterlife in the Old Testament, the word sheol. The Hebrew word sheol is used 66 times in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament constant refers to the body as going to the grave, as the soul of man going to Sheol. The earliest thoughts of Sheol indicates that there was no distinction made in the minds of people between the morally good and the morally bad. Just everybody went to Sheol. But even in the Old Testament, as time went on, people began to believe that Sheol had, had two sections. And they began to contrast this lowest part and, and highest part. While not clearly stated, it seems like the wicked are in the lowest part, while the righteous are in the highest part. Like Deuteronomy 32, you can read about this. Sheol is the beginning of our understanding of the afterlife, but God reveals much more. We come to know more and more about the afterlife as God reveals more and more throughout the Old and New Testament. It's something like one of those old Polaroid pictures. It slowly develops before your eyes. And the picture of the afterlife is a little clearer in Psalms than in Genesis, a little clearer in Daniel than in Psalms, and much clearer in the New Testament than in the Old. Just like we have to understand what Leviticus says to us about our need for sacrifices, the need for sacrifices of animals, in light of what the New Testament says about the sacrifice of Jesus, we got to understand what the Old Testament tells us about the afterlife in light of what the New Testament reveals. So, Your answer to your friend who's telling you we don't go to heaven when we die is, God tells us in the New Testament that we will immediately be with Jesus when we die. What believers were unsure of in the Old Testament, we can be sure about today. So what about those people who lived in Old Testament times? Let's take a closer look at that. While the Old Testament saints, true believers in God, didn't have a clear and precise understanding of what happens after death, that lack of understanding didn't keep them from enjoying the eternal rewards. They they may not have known they were going into God's presence, but they certainly did go into God's presence. Now, as we look at this truth, the development, during the time between the the 400 years between the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament being written and the beginning of the New Testament, the Jewish concept of Sheol had progressed to the stage where it was believed that Sheol had two distinct compartments. One was a place of torment for the wicked. It was called Hades. The other was a place of bliss, often called Abraham's bosom or paradise. Jesus told a story in which he talked about these two. So he affirmed these truths that had come, begin to come into people's hearts and minds. He talked about Hades and paradise in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And as this scripture comes up, let me take some time to read this long passage because it's one of the places Jesus talks the most about the afterlife. Luke 16, 19 to 31. Now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs that were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I'm in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that during your life, you received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he's being comforted here, and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us, there's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. But he said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if somebody raises from the dead. So here you get, Jesus talks about this idea of two distinct compartments. The rich man can see Lazarus in paradise he can't cross over to the other side. Jesus' story here in Luke 16 teaches us two hard-to-hear truths. One is that there's no rest from the torment, and the second is that there are no second chances, that he's not able to say, I want to cross over, and somehow in my seeing my need now, I'm going to get a second chance. Now, as you read this story, you see how our Understanding of the afterlife that God has given to us is increasing. First, people viewed all of the dead as going to a shadowy place called Sheol. Then God gave further light. And people understood Sheol as a place with two compartments, Hades for the wicked, paradise for the righteous. There's a clear line between the two that can't be crossed. After Jesus' resurrection, the picture just gets even clearer. After the resurrection of Christ, the New Testament teaches that believers who die enter immediately into the presence of Christ and that unbelievers enter immediately into a place of punishment and separation from God. Philippians 1, Paul writes, I'm torn between the two. I, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Paul is saying, when I die, I'm gonna be with Jesus. That's what's gonna happen immediately. Now, why am I taking you into this deep water of doctrine? Because false ideas about the afterlife grow out of not knowing where you go immediately when you die and because of doubts that get planted in our minds about God's eternal plan for us. All believers of all times are now with the Lord in heaven, and that's where you and I will immediately go when we die. There's no waiting period, there's no purgatory, there's no soul sleep, immediately in the presence of the Lord. Now, to understand that, you have to understand, just briefly, the intermediate state and the resurrection of the body. Second Corinthians five, six to eight says, therefore, we're always confident, And we know that as long as we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So he's talking about when he's gonna die. And he says, when I leave this earthly body, I'm gonna immediately be at home, present with the Lord. But this is something called the intermediate state until Jesus comes again and our body is also resurrected. The the intermediate state is the phrase used by theologians to describe the state that those who die now are in between the time now and then when Jesus comes again. Now, now why the difference? Because while our souls go immediately to be with God or to suffer in Hades, our bodies have not yet been resurrected as Jesus' body was resurrected. Now, I know, we've probably gone about as deep as you wanna go, but I wanna take you just a little bit deeper. We know that when we die, it's our spirit that goes to be with Christ. But what about our body? Is it just thrown aside? How about Jesus? When Jesus was resurrected, what happened to his body? Well, we know, Luke 24, two to three, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. The body was no longer in the tomb. Jesus' body disappeared from the tomb because his body was resurrected. His physical body was transformed to become a resurrected body that would live forever. Now, when we as believers die, What happens to our bodies? Our our spirits go to be with the Lord, but our bodies remain here on this earth. Now, why the difference? Let's just take a look at what the Bible has to say about this. The Bible clearly tells us that when Jesus was resurrected, he immediately had a resurrected body. The Bible also clearly tells us that one day, you and I too will have a resurrected body. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians 15. And the Bible also clearly tells us that we receive that resurrected body when Jesus returns, his second coming. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 talks about this. Do not fear. Although the body awaits resurrection, when you die, your spirit immediately goes to be with the Lord. So you picture it like this. There's sort of a a, a, a quick timeline there for you of how it works. We all die, believer or unbeliever. And believers, our intermediate state is that our spirits go to be in God's presence, a place of joy, and eventually we're gonna be resurrected to life. Our bodies are gonna be resurrected. We're gonna spend eternity in heaven. Unbelievers, when they die, the intermediate state is to go to Hades, a place of suffering. They are resurrected to judgment and then spend eternity separated from God in hell. So, what do you look like while you're with him in spirit and you haven't yet received your resurrected body? The four-word theological answer for that is we do not know. The Bible doesn't tell us. By by the way, there's a lot of things we don't know about the afterlife. God has told us just enough to help us while we're on this earth, to keep us from false teaching while we're on this earth. He doesn't burden us with things we don't need to know until we get to heaven. And honestly, sometimes the questions that we ask God are somewhat like your five-year-old walking up to you and saying, tell me what's gonna be on my college entrance exam, I have to know today. God's answer to us, it'd be something like the answer we'd give to our kindergartner. If I told you now, you wouldn't understand a word I was saying. And and you have different things, by the way, to be concerned about right now, like cleaning your room, you'd say to your child. In the midst of this study, it's good to take a moment to admit something about us. We haven't even mastered spiritual finger painting, things like love God and love people, and we're asking God to teach us calculus. The, The simple and straightforward question that all of us now can answer is this. Here's just making this very simple when we talk about this truth about the afterlife. How can I be sure I won't spend eternity in hell? What what kind of crime does a person have to commit to be sent to such a horrible place? The, The crime that sends a person to hell is rejecting the rescue, rejecting Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior that all of us need. John 3, 16, God loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send His world, his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Remember, if you decide by, by desire or neglect to live separate from God in this life, you're gonna live separate from God in the next life. But if you accept God's offer of a rescue, a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, you're gonna live with God in the next life. In the end, as C.S. Lewis said, we're either gonna say to God, thy will be done, or God's gonna say to us, thy will be done. I was once at a church in the Los Angeles Barrio, and at the end of a time of preaching and singing together, the youth pastor stood up to speak. The the singers in the concert that had just happened had invited everybody to make a commitment to Christ. And not only did nobody respond, it was evident nobody was listening. The the pastor gets up and he looks at the back rows of the outdoor tent that the concert had been held in. And he said, all of you you back there, Andrew, Jose, I'm talking to you too. All of you come up here with me. And as he called each of those teenagers by name, it was evident that this is no fly-by-night evangelist. He knew these kids. He loved these kids. And the kids, they tried to look as cool as possible as they walked up the aisle, but the pastor knew them too well. He gets them all lined up in front of him, and he says, before you leave tonight, I want you to listen to me. The message in this music tonight, this is serious business. You know what I'm talking about. In this neighborhood, he said to them, this might be the last time some of you hear this. This is about heaven, this is about hell, this is serious business about you. We try our best in our society to not take hell too seriously. We we, we throw the word around like a casual swear word and jokes about hell are just too common. But somewhere deep down, we all know that we're whistling in the dark, that this is serious business. So let's settle some serious business right now. If Jesus has rescued you, thank him like you've never thanked him before. Thank you that you've rescued me. Thank you that you've rescued me. If you're depending on yourself for that rescue, if you've neglected God's love for you, turn to him right now. Cry out to him for the salvation that only he can give. And if you have friends or family, who've died and you're frightened that they might be separated from God in hell, trust God as the perfect and just judge. Leave it in his hands. If you have friends or family who are alive, who've not yet called upon Jesus to rescue them, ask God for a new boldness, a new compassion to tell them the good news of Jesus' love, the good news that Jesus came to forgive our sins if we trust him. Let's pray together. Father, as we study the truth about hell, it brings a hush over our soul. It's truth that makes the right things seem so much more important. There is a place called hell, and that tells us how great our salvation truly is. There is a place called hell, and that that impels us to tell others the good news of Your life. There's a place called hell. And that motivates us to live the holy lives that you've called us to. Father, it's our prayer that one person could see in us and hear from us the difference that Jesus can make and that they'll be drawn to trust in you. We thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus to die on a cross, that you invite all people of all places and all times to find their hope in you. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. Amen. My prayer is that as you talk with each other these next few moments, it'll be a time of honest encouragement. These are hard truths to look at, but don't forget about the rescue. Don't forget to encourage each other in the rescue. Don't forget to hope together, even as you talk about the realities of the afterlife, because Jesus gives us hope. So in that, enjoy your time talking with each other.
0: There was a song we used to sing at Saddleback. It was called Reach One More for Jesus. It came from a story that Pastor Rick Warren told about his own father, a pastor, when he was on his deathbed. Having not said much for several days, he sat up suddenly in bed and began saying over and over again, reach one more for Jesus. I've got to reach one more for Jesus. Having served God his entire life, Jimmy Warren knew the urgency and importance of sharing the good news of the gospel with everyone he could, while he could. May these truths we've been studying prompt in us that same unyielding desire to reach one more for Jesus. Have a great discussion, we'll see you next time.